Beloved, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, our prayer this morning is simple. Draw near to us and help us draw near to you. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to love. This we pray in the name of the one who is present to us all, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There is a very famous riddle that Google tells me comes from the 90s, so that definitely must be true. And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it, and it goes something like this. A father and his son are in a car accident and are both badly hurt. To address their injuries, they are taken to separate hospitals. But when the boy is taken into the operating room, the surgeon says, I cannot do the surgery because this is my son. How? Is this possible? Now, according to our 2023 sensibilities, this riddle is laughable. In this day and age, we don't have to think twice about how this is possible. We know that women and thus mothers can be surgeons. We also know that a child could possibly have two fathers. And yet, as outdated as this brain teaser is, the lesson still applies. Sometimes our idea of how something should be keeps us from seeing how things actually are. For example, less than a decade ago, I asked a group of very savvy, modern 20, 30-somethings to draw me a picture of God. Don't overthink it, I said, just draw. A few participants got to work rather quickly and began scribbling something like an amorphous blob or a beam of light. But a good majority of the group paused and very hesitantly began to draw. Now here's the crazy, or maybe not so crazy thing. Most of their drawings looked exactly the same. To them, God was an old man with long flowing hair, standing on a floating cloud, wearing a white robe with a white cinch. It makes sense. In movies and in children's Bibles, that is the image of God that we have been given. But scripture doesn't give us any of these details for the Almighty. If the earlier lesson still applies, there is a good chance that our idea of how we think God should be might be keeping us from seeing how God actually is. Now let's extend the lesson even further. If you were asked to draw a picture of a minister in the midst of ministry, what would you draw? As savvy and modern Christians, I am sure and confident that our artwork collectively would run the gamut. But if we sent this assignment to central casting, we would likely be given a picture of a man wearing a suit or a clerical collar while standing in a pulpit or in a hospital room or in a confessional. And yet once again, scripture offers us no such details. As we have seen these past few weeks, a minister in the midst of ministry is a midwife, just showing up to her job day after day. It's a fisherman stopping what he's doing and walking away from his job. It's a widow offering up her last bit of bread and oil. According to scripture, God makes ministers of us all and calls us to live out our shared calling at our jobs, in our commutes, in our grief, and even in the mundane. In other words, the, minister, the ministry of the ordinary. 
The challenge for us is whether or not we can give up our ideas of what should be for what is. Helping us with that today is a reading from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 19, the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he is gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay them back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Friends, the word of the Lord. All right, now if I were to ask you to draw a picture of Zacchaeus, chances are that those of you who grew up in the church would reflexively sketch a cute little cartoon man sitting on top of a very fluffy sycamore tree. And in the midst of your sketching, chances are you would be simultaneously humming a jaunty little tune, famous for teaching us the most important things about this story's main character. No, I'm not gonna sing it for you. <laughs> but I will say how Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Oh, you all wanna sing it. I mean, we can stop and just sing it, that's fine. And yet once again, the sweet portrait of Zacchaeus we have in our minds isn't exactly the one painted in scripture. Yes, fine, the text tells us that Zacchaeus was short in height or stature, but only to explain why he climbs into a tree to catch a glimpse of this Jesus of Nazareth. From there, the story moves quickly and without much detail. Somehow, Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the crowd. Somehow he knows this man's name, and for some reason he invites himself over to stay at Zacchaeus' house, the last person anyone would imagine the Son of God to consort with. Despite the sweet image we have for Zacchaeus in our minds, scripture tells us that he was a rich chief tax collector. The subtext being that he was a greedy opportunist who profited off the Roman occupation of his own people. With a monopoly on all things money related, Zacchaeus had the unique ability to rip off the average citizen and local Roman officials. In other words, Zacchaeus was a wee little scumbag which explains the righteous grumblings of the crowd. Because if anyone had asked them to draw a picture of the kind of person Jesus should be hanging out with, it wouldn't be a traitorous, money-grubbing scumbag like Zacchaeus. 
And that isn't even the craziest part. If we are being honest with ourselves, the most unbelievable, the most inconceivable part of this story is what he asks Zacchaeus to do, to give him a place to stay. He doesn't tell him to quit his job. He doesn't tell him to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. He doesn't tell him to confess and repent and make amends. All Jesus asks is for Zacchaeus to get out of the tree and give him a place to stay. And as the story goes, Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to welcome him. As it turns out, one of our favorite Sunday school stories is actually a riddle, a puzzle meant to reveal the kind of person we think is worthy of serving God, the kind of sacrifice we think is worthy of honoring God. If you're anything like me, it's not hard to accept someone like Shifra or Pua as ministers of God. It's not hard to accept their courageous act of defiance against the Pharaoh as a ministry of God. But a rich tax collector just giving Jesus a place to stay, that's not ministry. That's just basic hospitality. Exactly. While this story doesn't comply with what we think should be, it does encourage us about what is. That no matter who we are or how minor our sacrifice, that is ministry. Everyday acts of generosity, minuscule moments of kindness, tiny gestures of hospitality. Just because we aren't preventing genocide or dropping everything we are doing and leaving our homes, that doesn't mean that we aren't involved in life-changing ministry every single day of our lives. Don't believe me? Well, think back to the passing of the peace question and a time in recent memory when someone ministered to you. What did that mean to you? How did that make a difference in your life? For me, in the past week, I have experienced the profound ministry of a home-cooked meal, of a well-timed text, an encouraging email. My Monday through Friday minister is this one dad at my daughter's elementary school whose name I don't even know, and for reasons I do not even know, he signs up to do drop-off duty every single day, which means that every day from 8 to 8.30 a.m., rain or shine, sun or clouds, he is standing in the front of the school just joyfully opening the doors for countless grumpy little humans on their way to class. That is his ministry of the ordinary. Need another example? Listen now to how beloved member Bob Goss ministers in his ordinary situations. Bob, thank you so much for doing this conversation. And I have to share with the entire congregation that um, it was a conversation you and I had several months back that really inspired this entire sermon series, the ways that you were witnessing to how God was using you in your life in small and uh, everyday and perpetual situations. So thank you for the inspiration that is you. Bob, you've served as an elder at this church. You and your wife, Kathy, have served in a number of contexts. So what has ministry looked like in your life? 
Well, it's funny because you were talking about me being an elder and everything. I mean, I I wasn't raised in the church at all. And so the idea of me being a church person, being on, you know, session and, you know, a deacon and things like that, you know, it, it still strikes me as sort of humorous in a way. It's like me. Are you sure you got the right person? Um, so, yeah, I've never thought of myself, you know, very actively ministering. But yet I find myself in ministry situations a lot. And so one of them was my wife and I, when we were first uh, getting married, we after we got married, we wanted to have like a couple's ministry. We had gone through a class at First Pres with the Wickstrands, and uh, we thought this is really good. Let's continue this on in our marriage. And so we created a couples group and we, you know, it lasted, you know, about 15 years. And so we were immensely enriched with that. Um, and so that's one area of sort of conscious ministry that uh, I've had. Um, but, you know, right now, currently, you know, I'm in sort of a ministry at my mom's um, uh, facility. She's a, she's 96 years old, and so she's in a, a um, assisted living facility, not far from me, which is great. So I see her a lot, and it's been a real blessing to be able to see her. And so I've gotten to know a lot of the folks there over the time, residents and staff people. And as that's happened... Um, you know, it wasn't really intentional, but I find myself sort of in a ministerial kind of role sometimes with right. folks. And so, um, you know, mostly it's really just noticing people because there's a lot of staff people, you know, there's janitorial, there's nurses, there's nurses aides, there's security folks, there's food service folks. And a lot of them are sort of on the edges, you know, they're kind of invisible folks. And so I try, I mean, my first thing is to notice, to notice people and to notice residents too, because there's a lot of folks there that are, you know, they don't have a lot of visitors mm -hmm. and they're not sure. They're, in fact, I heard an older woman say, a resident there say just the other day, she says, you know, I'm not really sure what this phase of my life is really about. And the sense I got was there's not a lot of purpose anymore. What am I doing here? And so just noticing and hearing those kinds of things. And then I try to engage with folks and get to know them a little bit. And yeah. so um, it's, it's, it's a rich, a rich place for sure. What inspired you to take on the posture of a minister? And you've said to me before, I've never seen myself as a minister, but everything you just described that's ministry, seeing people, engaging them, listening to them, those who would otherwise be invisible. So what inspired you to walk in instead of just focusing on your mom, transactional, in and out, to engage the entire community? Well, I mean, I like people. And so it's, and they're interesting to me. And I don't know, they touch my heart too. I mean, that's the main thing you, you, you know, and I, and I think I, I think I relate to people on the edges. I mean, mm -hmm. I've always felt like I was again, sort of with the church. I was already outside looking in kind of wanting some sort of, you know, community, some spiritual community, but not really, you know, buying the, the, the faith, um, requirements there sometimes or feeling like I didn't quite fit in, you know, a lot of 
people can relate to that, I'm sure. But um, so, you know, I don't know. I just sort of notice people and, um, and, and I notice things. And so it just, and and then you know it takes a little bit of effort and courage to start engaging with people because sometimes it's welcome sometimes it's not and so you just have to kind of you know ride with that but yeah i tell you charlene i as with most ministry actually you end up getting more out of it than you feel like you're giving yeah i mean it's amazing how you've been able to it's an honor right what an honor sacred honor it is to enter into people's stories those vulnerable places and so you you use the word courage which i think is so appropriate um the theme of of today is everyday faithfulness everyday ministry so uh do you have any closing pieces of advice for those who are who feel maybe like who are going to say the same thing as you i don't see myself as a minister but here I am, God, how can you use me today? Yeah, I mean, I just say, God can use me and he can use you for sure. And mm-hmm. just, it's not going to be the same way that, you know, it's for me or for somebody else. So, you know, don't don't worry about comparisons, but just, you know, find the ways that um, you get energized when you do it. Um, you, you you feel like you're on, you know, trust your instincts that you're on to something, something meaningful and important. Um, and that can be in a variety of ways, I think. Um, you know, for me, it's just noticing other people and engaging, trying to encourage when I can. <laughs> Um, that kind of thing. And, um, and, and then the tricky part for me is to actually share part of myself, mm. right? Because it's easy for me to sort of listen, and people will talk, and then I can just go away and not really, you know, reciprocate and be vulnerable back. And so that's my, my little task to do uh, with them. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say just don't worry about consciously trying to like, okay, what's my ministry? But, you know, God will will show up, you know, in your circumstances for sure, uh, workplace or whatever, um, you know, because there's lots of need out there and yeah. just, just kind of be open, uh, yeah. be attuned a little bit. And um, yeah, just, just listen to those little urgings in there. I mean, I've, I've had times where um, on my honeymoon with my wife in Hawaii, we came upon a, mm-hmm. a, a woman who was uh, renting cottages. And, uh, you know, I thought we were there for one reason. And then it got shared that her daughter had just lost her, her child mm-hmm. in at the hospital that day. And suddenly you know, the whole thing shifted, you know, right away. And, and I got this little voice and I said, pray for her. And I'm like, I don't know her. Is this going to be received well? Is it going to be accepted or not? And I just pray for her. So I prayed and it felt very awkward and hard for me. But when I kind of looked up after I, my prayer, tears were just streaming down her eyes. And she said, I'm sure God sent you here to help, you know, bolster my faith right now when I really needed it. And it's like, whoa, you know, Kathy and I were just like, little shivers went down our spines. It's like, here we are, you know, our honeymoon, thinking about ourselves, you know, totally. And yet God used us in that moment to, you know, meet somebody when, you know, their need was, you know, really great. I so wish that 
at seminary, I'd heard a lot of these nuggets of wisdom that you're sharing, mm -hmm. um, that it's that ministry can give you energy. It doesn't have to just be laborious work that feels unnatural to us. Um, and most importantly that you shared how you have to remember yourself that ministry always goes both ways that you can receive in the giving. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Bob, thank you so much. You're an inspiration to me. And I know this wisdom is really applicable and, uh, helpful to those who are listening right now. So thank you. Okay. You're welcome. And I, I hope so. So thanks a lot. And so friends, there's perhaps no place more sacred and more ordinary, no place where you can get fed and feed more than the table. I will never forget the first time I presided over communion as an ordained minister of the word and sacrament in the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. It was a young adult retreat and I wept my way through the entire liturgy. Just repress your surprise, I know. In my mind, that was what I thought I would be doing as a pastor, just nonstop sacraments and sacred rites and epiphanies and miracles. <laughs> it took about a week for me to realize that wasn't the case. Maybe that's generous. As it turns out, full-time ministry is emails and committee meetings and emails and hospital visits and emails, and studying, and emails, and worship planning, and some emails, you know? After learning that ordination didn't magically unlock a life full of ministry opportunities, I realized that it's not a title that makes me or any of us a minister. It's simply being open to ministry the constant daily minuscule ministry that will never be recorded or remembered or even retold. But it's the kind of stuff that can change a person. Because even as Zacchaeus shows us, once you realize even the little you have to offer, you can't stop. Everything becomes ministry. Everywhere becomes ministry. Everyone becomes ministry. Yes, we might worship a God of grand gestures who gave up his life for us, who conquered death for us, but do not forget that he also drew in the sand for us. He went to weddings for us. And he broke bread for us. So big is his love for us that he made it small enough for us to understand. And so... There's this Anglican priest named Tish Harrison Warren who wrote this book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. I encourage you to get it. In it, she writes the following. At the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples to eat in remembrance of him. Of all the things he could have chosen to be done in remembrance of him, Jesus chose a meal. He could have asked his followers to do something impressive or mystical, climb a mountain, fast for 40 days, or have a trippy sweat lodge experience. But instead, he picks the most ordinary of acts, eating, through which to be present to his people. He says that the bread is his body and the wine is his blood. He chooses the unremarkable and plain, average and abundant 
bread and wine. Right before Jesus' death, he didn't offer his followers theories of his atonement or recite a creed or explain precisely how his death would accomplish salvation. Instead, he gave them an act to perform. Specifically, he gave them a meal to share. It is a meal that speaks more volumes than any theory. If all the cathedrals on earth were gone, all the most glorious art were lost, and all of the world's most valuable treasures were thrown out, Christians could and would still meet for worship around the scriptures and the Eucharist. To have church, all we need is word and sacrament. Christ is our bread and gives us bread. He is the gift and the giver. God gives us every meal we eat, and every meal we eat is ultimately partial and inadequate, pointing to him who is our true food and our eternal nourishment. And so now, my friends, let us feast. <laughs>